Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy fam. Hey, um, I had this happen to me the other day. I'm sure it's never happened to you. A friend of mine sent me a link to a YouTube video, right? Uh, This one was uh, to a little cat video, so uh, we're going to play that now. It was, um, it, well, what it was, was uh, this guy, it was, I guess, a music video. There's this musician named John Bellion, who you may have heard of. I'm usually six years behind culture, so I'm just now maybe getting this. But he sits down at a piano and plays an acoustic version of his song called Human. Now, this thing just wrecked me when I listened to it. I was like, no, I'm not crying, you're crying kind of thing, sitting there listening to it, right? Um, I, and let me say, before I get into this, it's kind of a little caveat. I don't think I need to say it, but this is not, uh, retweet does not equal endorsement, okay? Like, I'm not saying that I endorse everything about this guy. You go, I don't know if he's a believer or not. Go listen to his songs. Definitely some with explicit lyrics, okay? So don't, like, gather your kids around the fireplace. Say, we're going to listen to this worship leader that Pastor Spence told us about. No, don't, you know, be smart. You're smart people. But anyways, this one particular song, it just... I felt like he grabbed hold of and articulated so well some things that, uh, that we just feel in our own soul all the time, right? So what I want to do is actually read you uh, the opening lyrics of that song, okay? The first two verses or first two lines of the first verse, whatever the right way to say that is, okay? Just a couple of sentences, all right? Um, and I know that lyrics are meant to be sung, but I only do solos in the shower and in the car. We are in neither of those places, so I'm going to read them to you, okay? Um, here's what he says. He says, I always fear that I'm not living right, so I feel guilty when I go to church. The pastor tells me I've been saved. I'm fine. Please explain to me why my chest still hurts. I spent 4000 on the Marty McFlies, but I'm still petrified of going broke. There's someone gorgeous in my bed tonight, but I'm still petrified that I'll die alone. I'm just so sick of being human. Now, why did that resonate with me? Why does that resonate with, with so many? I mean, there, that thing has been viewed 7.9 million times. Now, I know half of those are me and my buddy since we discovered it, okay? But um, why have so many people latched on to that? I mean, it's because I think he's tapping into something we all fear, right? He's articulating something. So, I mean, think about it. We, we feel something's not right. We're, we're not living right. So we go to church, and the pastor tells us, hey, you're saved in Christ, which I was like, way to go, whoever preached to John Bellion, because I heard some gospel in that, right? And yet still, you hear the gospel, you hear me preach it, maybe it's week after week, and still you leave, and, and your soul aches still. So you spend more money to buy awesome stuff like the Marty McFly's, you know, Nikes that are based on Marty McFly's shoes from Back to the Future in the 80s, right? Or you swipe right to have an awesome experience but still you wake up and your soul aches and something internally is off. And so you keep trying to fix it with different things. And so Bellion says, 
I'm so sick of being human. But what my buddy who sent that to me, I thought was brilliant insight. He said, it's not that he's sick of being human. Because to be human is to experience pain, suffering, uh, isolation at times, yet to have rest. To be truly human is to have rest in the middle of all that because we're under the good care of a sovereign God. That's to be truly human. He said, he's not sick of being human. He's sick of trying to be God. That's what he's feeling, and that's why we resonate so much. Because listen to me, this series that we're in, in the book of Daniel, what we're doing is we're, as we're following Daniel and his friend's life, what we said we're setting up is, how does Daniel, who is under, uh, you know, the sovereign control of God, he has yielded his life to God, he's one of God's people, how does he live inside of a world that does not follow that God? And we said last week, that's kind of the world that we as Christians are in, right? Kind of a fringe minority group living under the rule of God inside of a culture that doesn't. And Bellion has articulated, I think, to just a beautiful point, the worldview that our culture does live under. And that is the word that you could sum it up with that culture uses is the word freedom. It says we don't live under the control. Nobody else tells us what to do. We live in freedom, which means I have my own truth. I do what I want to do. I do it my way. No one tells me what to do. Even if I do want to, to bring God into it, I only bring as much of him into it as I feel like is right. And, and I stop where he's going to try and tell me to do something that I don't want to do. Right? It's free. Now, the Bible has a different word for that. It's not freedom. The Bible calls that pride. And what we're going to see today, we're going to go, if you've got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to go. What we're going to see today is the story arc of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to cover three chapters of Scripture, Daniel 2 through Daniel 4. We're going to be moving. But here's what we're going to see. It's this, the reason we've got to cover that is because we're going to see these two worldviews pitted against each other. That they were there long, long time before John Bellion ever wrote the song Human. They've existed in all of time. And what you're going to see is, it's what Jesus said, it'll be Matthew 11, he said, those who will lose their life for my sake, who will surrender their lives to my control, they will find true life. But he who tries to keep his life will lose it. And you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar, who has everything. He's got, I'll explain to you just in a minute how powerful he is. He's got everything. What you're going to see, you're going to see him singing Bellion's song, Why Does My Chest Still Hurt? Why am I still so scared when I have all of this? So here's my hope today. My hope today is that this will be a message of rest for you. That you will be able to, to finally, and maybe Christian, maybe you'll be able to rejoice again in the rest that God offers you. And what it means to live under his control and actually have rest and life there. And maybe there have been some spaces where you've been trying to do it on your own and you've thrown God out of the equation and says, I'm fine with God in my life but not in charge of my life. I'm the one in charge. And you call it freedom and it's actually pride and you're going to be able to finally release that and find the rest and the true life that God has for you. Yeah. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so hopeful for that. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear. I, I just, I know we celebrate freedom out loud. We celebrate it, but... The secret all of us know is that that freedom is exhausting. Yeah. 
It's exhausting to the soul. And you are going to find life. If you'll listen, you'll find life today. And you'll be able to lay that down and find life. So we're going to get into it. Uh, I'm so hopeful for us today. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to start there. Uh, the Kind of the context, Nebuchadnezzar was, he's the most powerful man in the world. I mean, Babylon, his capital city, was the capital of the known world at the time. The city was remarkable. It is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built like a garden on two different sides of the Euphrates River, um, and it was connected by a tunnel. It was just covered in jewels and gold and silver. He built the whole city as a hanging terrace garden, right? His, um, his palace had a 400-foot-high waterfall. Three huge walls that lined the city. I mean, Chip and Jojo got nothing on what Nebuchadnezzar is able to build. He, and look, he's the one who built it from the ground up. He had clawed his way to the top. His life had been one of struggle and war and conquest, but now the walls are around him like insurance. He's got nothing to worry about. I mean, literally, there's no army on planet Earth that could overtake him. He has it all, yet we're going to see him lose sleep, get scared, get wildly out of control, um, experience rage. He's unpredictable. He's emotional. He's got the Marty McFlies, but they ain't working. And so what ensues is a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and God over the throne. And it is the, y'all, this story, these three chapters are the best treatment on pride that you will find anywhere. So I'm going to walk you through four episodes that we see in these three chapters where the king battles God for the throne of his life. And as we go through these four episodes, I'm going to show you um, kind of like as we walk through these chapters, I'm going to show you the effects of pride on your life. All right? I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's just the epitome of pride. He actually himself says so at the very end. He's going to admit that he was the epitome of pride. And so I've said that word a couple times. Let me give you maybe a, a way to define pride, okay? Just as very simple. Pride is replacing God with you, all right? Just kind of a simple working definition. Anywhere that you replace God with you, that's those two worldviews, right? Freedom, as our culture calls it, which is really pride masquerading as freedom, is putting ourselves on the throne, Replacing God with self, trying to be God. And what we're going to do is we're going to unmask that. We're going to allow ourselves to feel the ache of that, to get behind the curtain of, man, this is all good just to be me and be who, I'm, who I want to be, whatever that is. We're going to unmask that. And you're going to see the one who has everything lives like a prisoner. And you're going to see it compared to the ones who have nothing, Daniel and his three friends. They live like free men. They have peace. They have joy. They're able to rest and sleep. But the one who has everything lives like a slave. Because for these guys, God is on their throne. And my hope is for us that it encourages us to lean into true freedom under God's rule instead of false freedom apart from it. So here is episode one. We'll call this one um, Dream One, the statue. There's two dreams. Um, here's uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. <laughs> the first effect of pride, right out of the gate, it's actually one we kind of already brought up a little bit, but the effect of pride is look, it's disturbed sleep. And I want to use that disturbed sleep kind of as a metaphor for fear, 
because that's what's happening to the king. And people, you know, by the way, people of power and wealth are kind of uniquely susceptible to this. You have it all, as Bellian says, but something is off. I mean, how many biographies do we have to read that consistently say that the people at the very top, the Nebuchadnezzars, are very troubled because they come to learn what the rest of us deny, and that is that the human soul wants something that is so big, you can pour all the empires of the world into their hearts, and it still doesn't satisfy because it's still not enough. I'm still petrified that I'll die alone. So the king calls his magicians and his sorcerers, and he says, hey, tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And they say, well, uh, tell us the dream first. And look what he says is this, verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. By the way, he's going to say that a couple of times. I don't know what his deal is with limb tearing and garbage dumping, okay? But that is, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Verse 6, but if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts or reward and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. Go. Look, being a man of total control, he asks for something outrageous. Tell me what I dreamt and what it means. Of course it's outrageous. This is unchecked pride. It's another effect of pride. You see everyone first for how they can serve your needs. You make outrageous requests of them. You make unreasonable demands on others, demands you never make on yourself. You're not kind. You're not gracious to others. And because of that, when this, when this pride is ruling your life, you miss the joy that you were created to have when you're serving others. And you miss it. The joy that comes in giving away yourself to others because you're demanding everyone else exists to help serve your kingdom. Y'all, I, I battle this. Listen, there'd be some transparency today from me. I battle this so much. Uh, there was a fellow pastor in our community who wanted to take one of um, our pastors at Mercy um, out to lunch. And you know, when he told me that, you know what my first thought was? What do you want from him? You trying to take him? Because, isn't that that silly? The guy just wanted to get to know uh, another guy, another fellow pastor in the community. And I'm sitting here thinking, no, no, I need that pastor to serve my ends. And if you take him, then that won't help me achieve my ends. How absurd a narrative does pride create in us when we put ourselves up on the throne? I mean, you know your pride is bad when somebody else's lunch makes your blood pressure rise. <laughs> I have enough trouble with my own food controlling that, right? Oh, that's bad. But that's the effect of pride. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. He is a monster king. He's not a gracious king. Well, of course, the magicians can't do what he asks. So the king green lights, the limb tearings, and house garbaging. Um, and then you know, the problem is that includes Daniel and his friends. So verse 17, uh, right before verse 17, Daniel goes, hey, king, give me a second. Just chill out. And then verse 17, Daniel went to his house, told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. And the, these are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This, we're going back into their Hebrew names. You look at last week for for that. Verse 18, he urges them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. God help us. See, for Daniel and his three friends, the God of the heavens is the one on the throne, not themselves. They're submitted there. So they pray for wisdom. They pray for this God to help. 
Verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever. You've got to watch as the story unfolds, the distinction, the difference, stark contrast between who Nebuchadnezzar is praising and who these guys are praising. May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes times and seasons. Look at this. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Keeps going. Look at this. It's countercultural. By Daniel surrendering his freedom to God, he gets to worship with a full heart. He gets to have joy. And then he sleeps. His life is on the line. King Nebuchadnezzar's life's not on the line. He can't sleep. Daniel is threatened with imminent death. He prays, he worships, and he sleeps. Isn't that what we want? I mean, who is really free here in this? Look at verse 27. Finally, Daniel goes to the king and he says, no wise man, medium or magician or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he's asked about. In other words, king, you're being ridiculous. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. The revealer of mysteries. What an awesome name for God that is. Has let you know what will happen. Daniel's saying, only God, King. As we get into this, I need you to know there was only God who did what I'm about to show you. Only God could do what you're asking for. God's going to be the one that gets the credit for what I'm about to say, King. Now, let me show you the dream uh, as Daniel recounts it. This is verses 31 through 35. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. Kind of go there a little bit um, in your mind, if you will. The statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue is pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its stomach and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fire clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fire clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I mean, this is kind of a wild dream. It's like ancient Persian Voltron or something, a statue that's there, right? But then he interprets, Daniel interprets the dream to say that the gold head represents Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom. And he says that your kingdom is the greatest of all the kingdoms. And these other sections that follow in the statue represent different kingdoms that are going to follow yours, which means, King Nebuchadnezzar, your days are numbered. That's the point. Your days are numbered. But then the the real point of the whole dream is verse 34. A stone comes out of nowhere, and the author makes sure to tell us that no human hand threw the stone. And this stone shattered all the kingdoms of the earth, And then that stone filled the whole earth and stayed there forever. Daniel says, here's the interpretation, verse 44. In in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. Only one kingdom will last forever. 
Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You're going to see it in all the episodes that we have today. Daniel 2 through 4 is pointing you to the one forever king that will be on the throne, and his name is Jesus. That's what Daniel 2 through 4 is all about. But how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Surprisingly, he worships. He worships Daniel, the passage says. And then 47, the king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods. It's kind of surprising, actually, that he would just, he just kind of have this quick turn from self-worship. Your God is indeed God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. He responds with what looks like worship. But y'all, at the start of the next chapter, he's right back to worshiping self. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's moment of conversion to becoming one of God's people. It should be. I mean, he asked for something ridiculous. Daniel comes up and delivers it and gives credit right where credit is due. It should have been his moment. But instead, it's just an emotional reaction. You ever had one of those moments? An emotional reaction, like where you, uh, maybe personal story, watch a Netflix documentary on how fast food is made. And so you have a quick reaction. I will never eat fast food ever again. Never going through a drive-thru. Honey, get the tiller out. We're going to tear up the backyard. We're making all our own food, right? And we're not going to do anything processed ever, any, ever again. But then three weeks later, you get on a road trip. And and you're driving down 40, 85, whatever. And man, that Chick-fil-A sign is like right there. It's just be really easy. And you're like, eh, I'm sure I'll be okay. I mean, in general, I'm eating much better now. So I can do this, right? That's not, that's not, we didn't change in that situation. I didn't change in that situation, right? I was just informed (laughs) and then went on about my way. This happens to a lot of people that we would call the de-churched. We're in church for a while, but but not anymore. They acknowledge in in a moment, an emotional moment, who God should be to them. But at the end of the day, the throne is too tempting. They want the throne. They want to be king. So what they try to do is they try to squeeze God into the throne with them. The problem is the throne of your life is not a two-seater. And so what ends up happening? It it feels nice to have God in my life for a little bit. You get a sticker that says God is your co-pilot. But eventually, you're going to leave church. You're going to leave God behind because while you say you believe in God, you're going to get tired of religion because at some point, you and God are going to battle over what your next step is supposed to be in life. And you're going to say the throne, freedom, actually pride, it's too tempting. So God, you gotta gotta go. Listen, that type of religion, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Look, I want to tell you this just plain, this might be a little bit blunt, but it's important that you hear it. You are not a Christian until you yield the throne of your life to God. But when you do, oh, when you do, you finally experience true freedom. Your chest won't hurt like that anymore. Um, When I was in college, a guy sat down with me and just kind of walked me through this and really just exposed some pride in my life. It was 
that I was living what I thought was um, for God, but actually wasn't. He said, he drew two circles, and if you um, grew up in, uh, and maybe had exposure to a group called uh, Crew, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, this, this is what happened. He drew two circles, he said, and he put a chair in the middle of both circles. He said, the circle represents your life, the chair is the throne of your life, it's who's in charge. He said, and before um, you become a Christian, before you ever hear anything about the Christian message, you are the one on the throne of your life, and God exists outside of that circle. He's not a part of your life. He said, but when you become a Christian, what you are saying is, I believe that Christ died for my sins. He's my Savior, but I'm also making him the one in charge of my life now. Right? So you put God in charge of your life, and you get off the throne and sit down at the feet of God. He said, but Spence, what you have done is you've created a third circle, and you've allowed God into the circle, but he's sitting at your feet and you're still in charge. And so you obey him where it works for you. He's not your God. He is just an advice giver at best. He said, and that's why you're so exhausted with religion, because it's not lining up how everything you think it should be. He said, you got to make that shift, and that's where you'll find true life. Listen, another effect of pride is you are confident that you know what's best in life. So you let God in, but not in charge. That's why you obey him in some areas, but not in others. He's just an advice giver, but you know what's best. The, the, to the teenager who doesn't obey God because he thinks he's going to lose his fun, that's, that's pride. God may be in the circle, but he's not on the throne. As soon as one of God's laws contradicts what we want for our life, we either silence God or we kick him out. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does, and watch, he goes hard. Okay, this is episode two. We're going to call episode two, The fire. And the rest of these episodes are going to go pretty quick. Chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We don't know exactly what the statue is. It's probably not of Nebuchadnezzar. It's probably of um, Nebu or one of the, the ancient Babylonian gods. But he made the whole thing out of gold. Isn't that interesting? He has this dream about a statue that's only partly gold. So he says, no, 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 no. I'm making the whole thing out of gold because the other kingdoms are never coming. Mine's lasting forever. Woo! It says, forget Daniel's God. Listen up, verse 4. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the, I'm going to call it a zither. Um, I did not get a good, uh, whatever that is. Maybe Charlie, our worship director, can Show me one of these later. A lyre, harp, drum, every kind of music. You're to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. He is setting up a showdown. And so some people that are out to get Daniel and his friends, they go and tattle on them because they are refusing. See, they exist under the sovereignty of God and they're at peace there. They're secure there because they know he's the one true God. So like, no, 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 we're not bowing to the whims of a madman. So they're still worshiping their one true God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious when he hears about this, so he goes into rage monster mode. Do you see the weight of, of trying to be God? We become obsessed with little things, and if the smallest thing goes wrong, we become the rage monster. I mean... Think about this. <laughs> I had a, a hilarious one of these where um, we'll just say a member of my family when I was growing up to protect them, okay? Um, 
Uh, we're living in the first world. There's running water, right? There's food. At a store, you can just go get it. You don't have to grow it. You know what I mean? We're living good conditions here in the States. And yet, one of my family members comes tearing through the house, red-faced. Why is there no toilet paper on the roll? You're like, whoa, chill out just a little bit. But we get so worked up over absurdly trivial things. We're not people of peace when we're the ones in control. With Nebuchadnezzar's case, one of the most powerful kings in history, he has 99.9999999% of the people around him worshiping him, and yet he's still furious. He still has rage. He's scared to lose control. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar gives them, I'm, we're not sure where Daniel is, but gives these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he asks them, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down, worship the statue right now. If you don't, immediately you're going to be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And <laughs> look, he just had this whole who this God is. But what does he say right here? Who's the God who can rescue you from my power? Say that last line. That's how you know you're the one on the throne. Your power is absolute in your kingdom. Watch how these three young men respond. These three men who have put God on the throne, put themselves at the feet of God. It is a baller response. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to give you an answer in this matter. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But then, this is the spot. Even if he does not rescue us, that's the, that's the profession of the one who exists in confidence under the care of God. Even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, we want, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Right there is how you live when you are 100% believing God is on the throne of your life. Do you know what this is? This is a missionary declaration to the nations of their absolute trust in their God and in only their God. Their declaration is only God. Only the one true God is worthy of our worship. Only the one true God can rescue us. And listen, deliverance and rescue aren't the issues for them. They are okay with letting God handle that part. Praise and obedience are their concerns because their God is worthy of giving their lives for. They're not concerned. They just need to make sure that they're obeying and praising this awesome God that they serve. Deliverance, rescue, that's God's prerogative. There's a guy named Nate Saint. He was, a, he was martyred, killed as a missionary to the Aka Indian people in Ecuador. He said this. This is so good. He said, in the military, we were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face the same expendability. Really, it should be all of us. How does that feel to you? These two kingdoms that we've talked about, these two perspectives, one where you're on the throne and one where God is on the throne. When God's on the throne, do you feel okay being expendable for the mission of God? Is God worthy of that to you? 
to lose your life for his mission, but he promises, Christ says, that's where you'll find true life. If he's on the throne of your life, then he is worthy of giving your life for his glory. And if he doesn't rescue you, he's still worthy. He's still worthy there. Let me ask you a really hard, a really revealing question. Is your worship of God contingent on him rescuing you from your circumstance? If you don't make the team, if you don't get married by 30, if your loved one doesn't survive cancer, if you don't get that new job, if you lose your current job, if you don't get into that school, if your spouse cheats on you and leaves you, if your friend betrays you, if your peers pressure you about your faith and make you an outsider, is he still worthy? Or do you run away from him because he has not been faithful to you? Is he still worthy? Listen, here's an effect of pride. You measure God's love for you by your circumstances. Y'all, this is is why I'm telling you this is where you're going to find rest today. Will you worship him in the even if not moments? Only then, only then is he actually on the throne of your life. Only then can you actually have true rest. And let me say, y'all, one of the things I love about our church so much is there are so many of you who are doing exactly that. And praise God, he is proving himself faithful. He is proving to be better. We see you. We see you set aside deliverance and rescue as God's prerogative. We see you. And it is leading us deeper into worship. When you're able to say he's worthy in the even if not, that's when you've uncovered the secret of Christianity. That's when you've met the God of the gospel where you can say only God is on the throne because only God is worthy of worship, not me. And God will use that to turn the world upside down. As you live under his authority under his good and right rule, and you give your circumstances to his prerogative, and you do that inside of a culture that exalts self, he will use that to turn that culture upside down. In a world that measures success by circumstances, God's people measure success by obedience to him, and they're able to trust him in the even if not, and that wakes people up, which is exactly what happened. This moment is what God used to really change Nebuchadnezzar. He flies into Rage Monster. He heats the furnace seven times hotter, ties these guys up, tosses them in. In fact, the fire gets so hot that the guards that toss them in, they die. But then verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, wait, wait, wait. Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. We're going to come back to dude number four in a minute, okay? Look at verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of the most high God. Whoa, whoa, king. Who is this God? You just said a minute ago. Now he's, you servants of the most high God, come out. So they came out. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God. Woo. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command. Come on, Nebuchadnezzar, it was your command. Don't go third person on us. It's your command. And risked their lives 
rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I issue a decree that any uh, anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here he goes again, will be torn limb from limb and his house will be made a garbage dump. That's like his go-to. <laughs> Look at that. For there is no other God who's able to deliver like this. Episode two ends with Nebuchadnezzar telling the whole kingdom, respect the God of these men. You'd think certainly by now, Nebuchadnezzar gets it. God's the one on the throne. God is the king of kings. And while there is clearly some change that happens, as we'll see for episodes three and four, he still doesn't fully get it. Episode three, the second dream. In short, he has another dream. There's a giant tree in it, okay? Holy one comes down from heaven, says, chop down the tree. Nebuchadnezzar goes, this is crazy. Ask Daniel to interpret it. Daniel says, the king is the tree. He's going to be cut down by God and driven mad going to go live with the animals in the wilderness, and he's going to stay there, verse 25, until you finally acknowledge, king, that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. And he gives them anyone as he wants. Your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Woo! Showdown. And Daniel urges him to turn from his pride. The king doesn't listen. A year goes by. A year goes by. And he's strolling out on that balcony, looking at his beautiful city, and he exclaims, verse 30, is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? I told you there is no one that epitomizes pride more than Nebuchadnezzar. But before you write him off, see how much this is us. One of the number one things that keep people from experiencing joy in Christ, peace, purpose, is that they are gripping the throne of their life so tightly. Don't tell me God's in charge of me. Is this not my bank account that I have built? You're trying to tell me that heaven rules that? Uh Uh-uh. Is this not my career? Is this not my family? Is this not my network? Are these not my skills that I've honed over thousands and thousands of hours of practice and years? No, I've earned this. This is mine. Heaven doesn't rule that. And because of that, that grip, we miss. We miss the joy of God. This is one of the effects of pride keeps you from the joy of God. When you spend your whole life looking down on your kingdom, you can't see what's above you. When you give glory to yourself, you can't give glory to God. You know, to give glory is to, to kind of put the weight of your life onto us, what we say around here, to lean your soul on it. And, and God is the only thing that can sustain the weight of your soul. This is why in freedom of our culture, people get exhausted because you can't sustain the weight of your own soul. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that ultimate joy was not found at the top of the world. It would be born in a manger. The smallest stable would hold the God of the universe. And it meant Daniel and his friends could have joy and rest even in the face of death that this man couldn't have with all the freedom and security in the world. So while he's speaking, while while he is saying these words, clinging to his throne, God says from heaven, that's what it comes to, your kingdom has departed. Out into the wilderness you go until you admit God is the only God. And so that's what happens. Verse 33, at that moment, this message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. It was nasty. And that's how episode three ends. But here's the last one. And it's real quick. We're going to call episode four, Only God. Right at the end of chapter four, before Nebuchadnezzar fades into history, 
one of the greatest, most powerful, and greatest, I mean, just like most powerful kings the world has ever seen. Here's his final words. At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. I finally looked up. And my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. Listen to him, y'all. This is the profession of one who goes from freedom, this false sense of freedom that's actually pride, and goes under and submits himself under the rule of the Most High God. This is what he says. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants. Think of that. Circumstances, uh, deliverance, rescue, that's going to be God's prerogative. He does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And now... I, Nebuchadnezzar, under his rule, praise, exalt, glorify the king of the heavens because all his works are true and all his ways are just. And Nebuchadnezzar's last words, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able. Do you see the release that Nebuchadnezzar feels there? Do you see the the rest that he has in his soul? This is not anger because God won. Like Nebuchadnezzar couldn't keep the throne, he was conquered by God. He's not angry at it. He's thankful that that this God was so gracious and kind that he was able to humble King Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar could not humble himself. He's thankful for this God breaking him down so that he could find true life. There are two cures for pride, two cures for this worldview that we live in, the hard way and the easy way. And the hard way is tragedy. That's the way Nebuchadnezzar went through it. Some encounter, some tragedy, and maybe in our day, it's, maybe it's your marriage or your health falling apart. I know some of you are probably going through some tragedy now, but let me assure you, this was mercy that brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees. Psalm 119.67, before I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In my affliction, maybe that's what God is doing. I don't want to put everything onto your situation, but I want to say that for Nebuchadnezzar, God had to strip him of everything. And Nebuchadnezzar saw that as grace. He was able. He's that good that he can do that. There is an easy way, though. The easy cure for pride is to see Jesus. See Jesus and let that go. You can see, you and I, we can see something Nebuchadnezzar couldn't see. The one who did sit on the throne, the one true throne, he lowered himself. Lowered himself to the form of a servant. Even lower, Isaiah says, Isaiah 52, 53, like an animal for you. His wounds and his blood were for you. Do you want to know the best summary that I could give you of your life? It's that Christ took your place. He took your place. That's the cross. If Jesus humbled himself, went on to the cross for you, then why in the world would I exalt myself? Why? See, pride comes from insecurity. 
because you are missing the security found over in God. You're trying to live on the throne of your own life. It's exhausting. But when you find security in Christ, pride starts to evaporate. This is the gospel, according to Nebuchadnezzar. Lift your eyes to heaven. Chapter 4, verse 34. See Jesus. God has offered to accept you even though you're a sinner. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, tearing people limb from limb, trying to keep his kingdom. And God was able to humble even him, and it was for his good. He is the rock who shatters all other kingdoms. His kingdom fills the universe. It will exist forever. He is the one who went into the fire for you. See, the Hebrew young men, they didn't deserve death. But you and I, we were the ones, we were the ones out bowing to the false God. And we worshiped them. We rejected God. And Jesus took on the fire of God's wrath in our place. And now he remains with us as we face the fires of life today. He humbled himself. He died for your sins. He became low for you. The wounds of his cross were beaten into his body for you and me. He took every lash of the whip. See him. Look at him. Look and live, as Hebrews tells us. Look at Christ and live. Believe in his love for you. Heed the words that Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, break away from your sins. Humble yourself. That is the call of the gospel to you. Humble yourself. Realize that this is just going to continue to exhaust you. It's never going to work. But God is able. He's able to humble you. That's what he's doing today. That's the message that he's given you. And you can lose your life. And as you lose your life there, you will find true life. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We worship your grace on us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your kindness towards us who believe. We give you praise. We give you glory. God, would you give us, I pray for all of us, give us the conviction. Help us to see where we are trying to reclaim the throne. Pull us back down off of it in your grace. Humble us that we may find true life. We praise you in Christ's name.